Welcome to The Order of Things. Every episode, we take a look at the ideas and history that structure the world around us. And so for our first episode, I talked to Will Davies about the decline of the expert. The expert is in a precarious position today. The rise of Donald Trump, anti-vaxxers, fake news, they all have people disengaging from any information that might be quote unquote biased. Now, some on the left have been critical of the traditional expertise as well, but for much longer, and we'll talk about that. But where did the idea of the expert come from? I talk with Will about their invention and their complicated history. My name is William Davis. I'm a lecturer at the University of London, uh, Goldsmiths College, and I'm author of three books, most recently Nervous States, Democracy and the Decline of Reason, and before that, The Happiness Industry, How the Government and Big Business Sold Us Wellbeing, and before that, The Limits of Neoliberalism, Authority, Sovereignty, and the Logic of Competition. Thanks for being here, Will. Pleasure. First, I want to talk to you about your most recent book. Can you just explain the, the title in the UK is Nervous States, but the subtitle is How Feelings Took Over the World. Can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, the, the book began with a sense that forms of objective expertise and facts were no longer capable of sustaining broad public consensus to the extent that we expect them to in liberal democracies for one reason or another. Uh, and this was something that uh, this is not in itself a very recent phenomenon, but it seemed to reach some kind of crisis point over the course of 2016 with, in my own country, the Brexit referendum, where it seemed that flagrant lying and uh, a sort of disregard for what many people consider to be objective truths seemed to be uh, something that people were getting away with and seemed to be something that kind of seemed to be a political strategy that actually worked. And I think that obviously similar anxieties have been experienced in the United States in relation to President Trump. And the 2016 presidential election in the States was evidently a, a conflict between someone with lots of passion, but very little regard for established facts versus someone who seems to have huge regard for established facts, but arguably not so much passion. And I think that one of the things that I was trying to do with the book was to look at this particular crisis of status of expertise, the status of technocrats in society. And the subtitle in, in the UK of how feeling took over the world was pointing to the fact that as many uh, observers, whether critically or enthusiastically, have pointed out, we seem to live in a time where feeling, and I mean that both in the sense of emotions, but also in the sense of, you know, in a more, um, you could say even in a sort of scientific way of, of kind of feeling our way through situations, is taking on a, a, a rising authority. And the flip side of that is that sort of slower forms of fact checking and collection and analysis and number crunching and so on seem to have lost authority in public life in various ways. So that's that's the reference to, to feeling there. And in other words, this is similar to someone being served up fake news on, say, Facebook or something, yeah. or conversely, being shown a completely accurate news article and saying, oh, that's fake news. I, I yeah. feel like that is incorrect. Like, I feel like this is some sort of conspiracy against my worldview. Yes. So I think the, um, the the terms that have come along in public life to grasp of some of this sort of thing are uh, terms like, well, obviously fake news, which is a, a phenomenon contemporary to social media um, and fake news as we as we know it. 
isn't really imaginable in the absence of platforms such as Facebook. Of course, there's always been, not always been, but there's been propaganda for decades and centuries. Um, so in that sense, there is a longer history here that needs to be uh, kept in mind. And one of the things I try to do in the book is to tell some of that longer history about how forms of, of, of manipulation and distortion have, have operated in politics in the past, uh, and particularly drawing attention to their important military role in conflicts. The other term which people use is post-truth. And there's been a series of books um, in Britain. We had three books all came out in the summer of 2017, all called post-truth. And these were by journalists who, generally speaking, I mean, some of these books are, are better than others, but generally speaking, the, the, the general thrust of, of these books is, you know, the Truth is sacred. Journalists need to defend the truth. And there are all of these liars out there who are sort of trying to demolish it. And this is how we can fight back, so to speak. And there's also been there's been the, the, the book published in the United States and the UK, uh, The Death of Truth, which blames effectively kind of links, a, draws a line between Donald Trump's disrespect for truth and particular developments in so-called postmodern philosophy in literature departments from the 1960s. Uh, through to the 1990s, um, and so it's 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 within that those debates. But one of the things I try to do is to is hopefully tell a, a more historical and I I hope a more nuanced story as to as to what the the form of truth is that we're currently seeing in some sort of distress, if not necessarily in crisis. You brought up postmodern philosophy, and that's sort of the thing I had in my mind. Uh, and you talk about this in your book. There is a very valid kind of criticism of expertise and statistics. For instance, I think, especially on the left, much before this was happening, when we talk about what the poverty rate is or what unemployment really means, or even things when economists come in and say, you know, the experts say we need austerity. It's not necessarily to deny always the, the existence of truths, but to say that facts are always interpreted by humans and often in an ideological way. So I guess, you know, how do you kind of tease out this more... I guess, skeptical approach to, to experts that I wouldn't necessarily call post-truth versus uh, sheer post-truth of Donald Trump saying that there yeah. you know, are a million people at his inauguration when there was whatever the number yeah, was, sure. half that or a quarter of that. <laughs> uh, I suppose what I, what I try to do is to avoid two positions. One is to say that truth is, or, or that facts, such as statistics, I mean, one of the, the examples I look at in the book uh, at some length is, is, is where statistics come from and, and, and what statistics do politically. So numbers such as GDP, unemployment, inequality, some of the things you've mentioned. And I think what we, what we kind of need, to, the sort of perspective I try to, to develop is one that is neither a sort of complete Trumpian disregard for, for these sorts of facts, but nor is it a sort of uh, a sort of unthinking reverence for them as if things that get kind of reported by statisticians and economists and so on are kind of objective facts uh, and therefore are sort of beyond rebuke. Uh, and that they need to, which it would be a sort of, uh, I suppose, a kind of Stephen Pinker position, which believes that, well, we've got, we, we've got the objective facts, and we just need to kind of hammer people with them until they realize that they're wrong sort of thing. And against that, I take a, a position that I guess I would call a pragmatist one, which is to say that things like statistics have a history, uh, and they also have a politics to them. The way in which we go about measuring our society and our economy and so on is partly a, a result of of particular political agendas. So different things that we measure are ways, are partly a statement about what we consider to be important. Now, measuring society, and measuring the economy is, I think, particularly for the left, is very important, actually. And I think that this is where, in a way, I think that the left needs to avoid uh, falling into a complete sort of kind of chaotic postmodernism of thinking that, that all technocracy is bad. 
because actually it's only through some form of kind of expert perspective on the economy that you can actually that, that certain forms of, of of injustice and exploitation come to light and that's what you know someone like thomas piketty's work on inequality has has demonstrated that but i think at the same time one of the things I try to show in the book is that when certain statistics and measures and numbers and forms of expertise, when they start to lose public credibility, that's not just a, an indictment on the public. It's not just that the public has sort of become stupid and have started believing ridiculous things and propaganda and, and conspiracy theories. It can also be because those measures have stopped grasping things that are, that are important about society. So just to give you an example, um, you take GDP. In the United States, 50% of people have had no increase in their real income since the late 1970s. This is an astonishing uh, state of affairs. And again, we, we only know this actually thanks to the work of people like Piketty in recent years who have, who have brought this sort of thing to light. But this means that anyone who's been speaking about GDP growth over those 40 years has been talking about something that effectively is irrelevant to uh, about half of the population. So what you've got there is an example where you've got a kind of headline indicator that people within the particular corners of the media and politics and, and, and liberal establishment and professions considers to be very important. And yet it's, it's measuring something that is really leaving lots of people out altogether. Now, I'm not drawing any huge conclusions about, you know, that is kind of explains why, say, Trump is a liar or why you know, conspiracy theorists are able to sort of peddle untruths. All I'm saying is that if we're to tell cr broadly credible stories about our society, and of course, the United States is an extremely large, very diverse society, so it's quite difficult to come up with kind of accounts of, of what of that society and of that history that everybody can share. But nevertheless, if there is to be an aspiration to some ideal anyway of, of consensus about, about the state of our society and our economy, then there has to also be some attention to the ways in which the economy and, and, and society creates the division that then manifests itself in um, very divergent ideas about what is true and what is false. Is it that experts have not been doing the best of jobs and those weaknesses instead of leading to sort of a critical engagement with them has just led to an outright rejection as as extreme as i would say anti-vaxxers and flat earthers well i mean i think obviously you take anti-vaxxers and 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 flat earthers i mean that's a that's a, a more kind of an extreme um manifestation of this um and that kind of thing has has probably always been with us to some extent i think clearly social media creates the, the the networks which allow you know people like Alex Jones from Infowars and others to to circulate types of of, of conspiracy theory that in the past you'd have had to be an extremely dedicated uh, producer of pamphlets and photocopying and so on in order to kind of get that kind of thing out there so the, the kind of circumventing of, of traditional editorial bottlenecks is obviously a, a, a kind of part of this but I think that one of the problems that I think one of the issues that that is at the heart of of what is referred to as populism around the world, is that the difference between politicians and various forms of experts, um, in, including reporters working in the media, have become negligible in the eyes of large sections of society. If you look at where trust has fallen to the lowest levels, um, and there are endless research, endless surveys done about about which professions um, uh, receive the most and, and least trust. Politicians and journalists are where trust is, has fallen most dramatically across liberal democracies of the West. I want to, well, I want to talk about Steven Pinker a little bit later. But first, uh, what I find really interesting is just the birth of the expert. I think it's a thing we take for granted that is 
in the grand scheme of human history, pretty recent. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. One of the things I, I thought it was might be helpful to do with the book was to try and explain, well, what is an expert and, and why do we even have experts in the first place? Because again, some of the hand-wringing around uh, lying populists and post-truth and so on of, of, of the last three or four years um, often kind of takes for granted that we know what a fact is and what an expert is and, 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 and what truth is. And so I go back to the 17th century, to the scientific revolution. Um, and one of the things I, I try to show in the book is that what took place in Europe over the 17th century was um, various efforts to resolve uh, religious conflict, which resulted in the creation of what we now recognize as the modern nation state in the Treaty of Westphalia of 1648, which effectively produces what we now consider to be the, the state, uh, a, a centralized source of, of political authority that, that creates laws that are un unquestioned within a particular territory. But there is also a, these new communities that arose around the same time who were not necessarily working in universities. Often they were working in clubs. They were working in uh, uh, operating, meeting in coffee shops. Um, they were rather like sort of nerdish networks that you might sort of imagine operating in Silicon Valley, sort of sharing ideas about data analytics or something like that. Um, and they were applying mathematics um, to various problems of, of society. There had already been some major breakthroughs in the earlier uh, uh, 17th century in relation to the use of mathematics in relation to astronomy and also uh, the early forms of, of modern medicine with, where uh, uh, the body was treated as a, a kind of mechanical machine, just as the, the stars in heaven were, were seen as a, as a type of mechanical machine. But the same mentality started to become applied to all sorts of things. So you could start to look at society in a similar way. You could start to look at the economy in a similar way. You could look at birth rates and death rates and uh, migration patterns and trade patterns by using these kinds of techniques that had demystified the movements of, of the stars or the movement of the blood around the bloodstream uh, to start to look at society in a similar way. You also had the development of these early experimental uh, communities where people would perform experiments on things like air pressure and so on in front of their uh, peer group who were other uh, members of these clubs, um, these gentlemanly societies and so on. Um, now, this is the, the birth of what we now consider to be expertise. These were people who effectively were a, a mixture of people who were skilled in mathematics, but also had a sort of uh, this fascination with the development and the collection of data. Uh, but what's crucial in order for these to be expert communities, as opposed to just sort of people kind of, you know, writing things down and observing things, was that they developed these kind of standardized methods through which data could be recorded. I mean, the, I suppose the, the pioneering example of this was the development of, of, of bookkeeping techniques by merchants much earlier in the, in the, actually in the 16th century. But uh, this meant that you, when one person w witnessed something with their own eyes, they could write it down in a particular standardized way and that they could use recording instruments and measuring devices and so on to, to give it a number rather than just to say how it kind of looked or felt to them. And they could then put this down as a record and they would make these books available, these records available to other experts in other cities around Europe. So they, it was very important that they had a, a, a culture of openness about, about their rec records and, and what they had witnessed. They also had placed huge emphasis on, on trust within these gentlemanly communities and between these different clubs that if someone said, yes, I, I witnessed you know, this experiment producing these results and I recorded it in this way, the people took their word for it or they, they accepted that the, the records had not been manipulated. 
Now, all of these things had were, were pretty contingent, sort of culturally. Uh, they were dependent on particular ethics. They were dependent on particular techniques of recording and so on. These are all things that historians of science have, have detailed in, in, in particular ways. But I think what's relevant about this today is, to, is, is a couple of things. One is the, it's a reminder that expertise has always been uh, an elite uh, in the sense that you know, these were enclosed societies that, that first kind of appointed themselves as the official documenters of natural, social, and economic events. They, they were self-appointed witnesses and recorders of the facts, and they would put them down in these books, and then they would, these books would be available to other experts. But this was not a democratic uh, event. This was, it may have had all sorts of benefits for society and, 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 and for human progress and economic growth and human health and so on. But nevertheless, the, the, the starting point of, of expertise was the delineation of these particular communities and networks and clubs as being the people who had the right, which they had appointed them, give, granted to themselves, to make factual, truthful claims about the world in ways that they believed were not derivative from either theology, because religion was not was something they were trying to eliminate from discourses of truth because it produced conflict. But equally it was not it was not a cultural phenomenon as far as they were concerned. This was these were these were recording devices and techniques of of data collection and and, and data recording that were potentially uh, universal, global or sort of transcendent in their in their nature. So of course this also had crucial neo-colonial dimensions to it as well, because they effectively were saying that Paris, Milan, London, these centers, um, Boston, these places where this type of discourse was developing were going to become the centers for the production of a type of truth that was going to be true for all humanity. In your book, it's interesting because here's a time where people accept facts at face value, so to speak, but you rightfully point out at the same time that there's this boom of science. It's immediately put in the service of white supremacy, misogyny. You see uh, chronology, human zoos. But even you give the specific example, which I did not know, but the insurance industry was born out of uh, these needs for experts and and facts. And the insurance industry that started in these cafes, immediately some of their biggest clients were uh, underwriting the slave trade. That's right. Which I think connects to the sort of modern lefty critique of expertise without sort of going all the way into the there are no facts territory. Uh, w- one thing that I, I think is interesting, you bring up Hannah Arendt a lot in your your book and you quote her in saying that violence becomes attractive when power doesn't seem available because elites have hoarded it all. Can you just explain sort of how this works in context of expertise? Well, on the question of the the, the insurance industry, I mean, this is this is. This is right. I mean, I don't discuss it in detail, but I think that one of the things that I'm trying to point out is that some of the contemporary critique of liberal technocratic expertise that we hear from populists, um, and I mean, these, these are movements that are that are sweeping Europe as, at the moment, and um, uh, as well as a, the sort of Trump-style populism in, in the United States. But actually, what's uh, at the very least ironic, I suppose, is that the uh, view of effectively one of the things that, that people like Steve Bannon and, and others are arguing is that um, the nation, whether that be France or America or, or, or Italy or Britain or wherever, has been colonized by these what 
Bannon and others will call the globalists, who are these uh, kind of technocratic, liberal, neoliberal elites um, who operate via institutions such as the European Commission, the IMF, um, various wings of Washington, D.C., particularly uh, the Federal Reserve and so on. The, the idea being that there is a kind of an identity to it, to a nation that these technocrats with their numbers and their economics and so on are oblivious to, and that they are kind of colonial powers who have basically stolen the nation away from the, from the, from the sort of ordinary good people, which, by which someone like Bannon obviously means white people, and that these technocratic devices for governing uh, society have sort of come as sort of alien forces from afar. Now, the, the, the point I make in the book is that this type of uh, nationalist, potentially even fascist type of, of, of critique of, of liberal technocracy is, is a sort of very late discovery of the potential illegitimacy or violence of expertise that would have that, that those with a neo-colonial or a uh, critical race studies or a feminist critique of expertise have, have been making some of these similar kinds of arguments for a very long time. It's just that not in ways that haven't really been heard in the political mainstream because they're considered to be somehow sort of uh, marginal or postmodern or, or whatever it might be. But the, the sense that, that, that expert techniques can be used, uh, so, I mean, they might be used within a, a, a core uh, Western liberal society in a spirit of consensus, which would be something like how, you know, the welfare state developed in Europe on something was that, you know, through processes of measurement and, and, and statistical representations of society, it was possible to tackle poverty and, and deprivation and so on. And there's a sort of benevolent kind of consensual form of, of, of social democracy there. But on the margins, um, you know, in colonial settings, um, statistics and, and, and techni expert techniques have, have long been used in ways that do not really aspire to, to govern in a spirit of legitimacy or to develop consensus, but more in a way to impose particular forms of rule from afar. So that, to go back to the Arendt distinction between power and violence, I mean, Arendt, um, for Arendt, this, this, what she meant by, by this distinction was that power is the capacity to uh, coordinate people and to achieve certain outcomes and to construct institutions in society. They may not be good institutions, they might be very, very bad institutions, but there is a productive aspect to power in the sense that it uh, assembles things in ways that actually create something durable. Um, so uh, government is, 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 is a type of power. Um, there is, bureaucracy is, is power. Uh, institutions or firms or, or, or political movements involve power. Violence, on the other hand, is what she calls purely instrumental, uh, which means that it doesn't actually construct anything. It doesn't uh, create anything uh, new in the world. But what it does is it, uh, it, it harnesses whatever instruments are at hand and uses them in a, in a way rather like weapons. So it uses them purely around their pure technical instrumental possibilities. And I mean, I talk in the book a bit about the, the way we hear this phrase weaponization in our in our public discourse so much at the moment, you know, that the Kremlin has weaponized Facebook and, and this sort of thing, is to say that, um, you know, we, we are living in a time where as trust in the institutions of government and in forms of expert technocracy has, have gone into decline, increasingly we do perceive expert knowledge, uh, public policy, governmental uh, instruments, not as things that are actually kind of constructing the world, but, but increasingly as, as, as sort of, I suppose, weapons of violence. Um, and things that, that breed resentment um, as much as anything else. And, and what's interesting about this, throughout the book, you use Hobbes as a, a pretty interesting thread throughout in that we're all familiar with the state of nature and the war of all against all. But in that, 
modern society has created, as you might call it, a, a nervous state, uh, these social bonds that limit violence start to break apart a little bit. Do you want to talk mm. about that? Sure. Sure. I mean, yeah, I mean, for, for those who, who aren't familiar with, with Hobbes's argument, I mean, it's worth just rehearsing um, the, the, the bare bones of his, of his claim. And it's a very, very simple, it's a beautifully simple political argument, which is often seen as inaugurating modern political theory. His great book was Leviathan from 1651, and it was timed exactly at the kind of conclusion of the religious and civil wars that had, that had torn Europe to pieces over the previous 30-odd years or so in the English Civil War and the 30 Years' War in Europe. And Hobbes argued that effectively, uh, in the absence of any type of central political authority, people might all be perfectly virtuous, decent people, but they would have no way of knowing if that was true of others. They might have be very benevolent individually, but if they encountered someone else who was a stranger, they wouldn't know what was on their mind, or whether they could be trusted. And the words are, 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 are sort of, um, words are not dependable. If someone says, like, I promise you, I will, I will do the right thing by you, that's still just words. And there is a kind of risk in believing what someone says to you. And even if they write it down on paper, he was incidentally very suspicious of these expert communities that were popping up around in his time, because they seemed to kind of, trust each other on the basis of these kind of paper records, but he, he was still rather sort of doubtful about on what basis this, this was actually meant to, to hold together. And Hobbes argued that the, the, the problem with, with human beings is that it becomes logical and rational to start to attack one another, not because people are necessarily bad, but because they can't know, uh, they have no base on which to, to trust each other. So it's like a sort of, in game theory, it's called the prisoner's dilemma, is you might both want a really to live in a, a sort of consensual society that works for everyone, but you've got no way of reaching that agreement or, or, or sticking to it. And therefore you, you renege on it and, and you have a, a breakdown of, of civil order and of trust. And, and this is what Hobbes described as the uh, state of nature, um, which famously he describes as a war of all against all, which was a kind of, you know, a grim sort of violent state of affairs where everyone was sort of out for themselves. Incidentally, weaponry is an important part of Hobbes's argument because he argued that, that you know, if if it was if it was all about who was strongest and and who was or who was most sort of heroic or or bravest, then that person could be in charge and everyone else could obey them. But the problem is that in a society with weapons, uh, a weak person can wreak havoc against a strong person, uh, and I think this is an important thing to remember when you think about things like sort of troll culture and and contemporary forms of of, of civil disobedience and. Uh, and, and disruption. Um, so Hobbes argued that, that we need to have a modern state because that basically, if you have a modern state, they create laws, everybody fears the force of the state. And because they all f equally fear the force of this modern state, they don't want to break the laws and they can all trust one another on the basis that everyone is equally fearful for their own life. Because that's the one thing we all have in common. We'll all trust this overbearing uh, physical force that we call the state or, or the Hobbes called the Leviathan. Um, and therefore we'll all kind of be able to get along because we'll all have this thing that is uh, a centralized source of violence in society. Now, what, I, what I'm arguing in the book, I suppose, is that it's not to say that we're necessarily, you know, if you think of what, what is often called failed states, which would be these sort of countries like Somalia or something like that, that implies, that phrase failed state effectively implies that, that a particular sovereign territory has, has, has fallen backwards from the Hobbesian civil society with a respected state where people all recognize the same laws back into something more like the war of all against all, where people have to arm themselves, where people have to take special measures to defend themselves, where trust is difficult, where commerce is, is difficult, where, where there isn't a, a trustworthy media and so on. And there's a kind of breakdown of civil society. Now, 
that's not happening in <laughs> Western liberal democracies right now. I mean, that's not the, the threat that we face, and, and that's not my claim. But I think what we're, what we're seeing is the emergence of a sort of buffer zone, I suppose, between the Hobbesian state of nature and the state of civil society, which is really what I'm referring to as, as, as this nervous state, where, uh, which combines certain aspects of, of both. And I think one of the key features of, of the Hobbesian state of nature is that people all live in a, in a type of real-time condition where they are constantly alert, they're constantly having to, uh, where the capacity to depend on institutions or to depend on one another is, is not taken for granted. Um, and I think that one of the forces driving this into our civil society and our institutions at the moment, which is very important in my argument, is, is digital technology. And I think that what digital technology, which incidentally, it's, you know, it's, it's not irrelevant that, that the devices that we, that we carry around with us, these phones, these, these uh, laptops and the types of um, uh, data analytics that, that allow us to sift through all of the, the content that is circulating around the world. All of these come from a, from a these have a military legacy, these, these, these technologies and these, these techniques. But this means that we are effectively living on our nerves much of the time because the reports that we're getting about the world or about our friends or about our, our work, whatever it might be, are unrelenting and they are constantly changing. And they don't allow for the type of peace or the type of trust which is more plausible in an analog society where you get a report about the state of the world on, say, you know, the morning newspapers, or you get a set of facts that come in from companies every quarter in their quarterly reports, or you get particular statistical accounts of society or so on, which come through every year or every six months or whatever it might be. So instead of having these kind of facts, which are these sorts of reports, which are a, a, a sort of stable account of the world, what we're getting, what we, we live with increasingly is in a sort of state of constant reactivity and constant nervousness that, um, you know, that we are constantly attuned to, to events that are unfolding in, in real time. And that this is um, creating, I suppose, a mentality of defense and violence, if not actually the physical reality of defense and violence. One thing that you bring up in the book that I find really interesting is virtue signaling or, or the complaint about it. It's often something levied against the left who, by the right, when they accuse the left of doing things purely for the sake of spectacle, purely to acquire sort of cultural capital. Let's say a good example is, what is a good example? I want to say Hollywood, but Hollywood might be the case where they are doing it simply. Um, <laughs> Uh, but, but, but for instance, if I were writing a screenplay and I were to have a black character as the lead role to sort of break with, uh, every single screenplay with a white male as a white lead role, it could never be out of a sense of my own personal values, but is always sort of a, a cynical ploy, whether for profit, profit, cultural capital. But I think as you discuss in the book, the idea that all of these values are purely cynical, mm. uh, is it a result of this nervousness? Is it a result of, uh, you talk a little bit about the marketization of knowledge. Uh, how do you sort of account for that? Well, I think in terms of this, this notion of, of virtue signaling and, and what, you're, what you're describing, I mean, in a sense, what this does is it assumes that everything is strategic. It assumes that uh, rather than treating discourse, or in this instance, a, a, a commitment to a, a better society and a, and a better, um, more racially just and equal society 
uh, it instead sees it as a move in a particular game. And there is, I suppose, a, a, a what particularly social media facilitates, and I think Twitter is, is probably about the, the worst for this, is to see is is to frame all of of social life as a type of as a type of game or really i suppose as a, as a type of war really in the sense that everything becomes a move a strategic move in an attempt to try and outwit an enemy or something so this means that it is you know certainly for those who 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 want to undermine particular political agendas casting doubt on their sincerity and their uh, and 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 reframing them as as strategic and self-interested is quite a is a way of uh, of, of delegitimizing them in some ways, but it is also, I suppose, in a way, it's um, what you know. To go back to the Aaron distinction of power and violence, what troll culture does, and what I think I'm, I'm sure the left does this to the right as well. But I suppose the, you know, quite it's probably more common in the way the right does it to the left. But is to treat all discourse, all political engagements as purely tactical, tactical and purely purely technical and not to actually see them as potentially attempts to start to found new types of institutions based around trust, norms, um, shared agreements, and so on. And in, and in the sense is that once something becomes framed as, as tactical, strategic, uh, purely instrumental, then it becomes much, you know, that is a way in itself of, of discrediting it. So it does some violence to people's attempts to uh, actually build something new in the world. It's interesting that they'll often frame things the left says is purely a strategic play. At the same time, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Ben Shapiro's a sort of right-wing talking head, but uh, there's this tweet that went viral of him saying the only reason to be friends with somebody on the left is to sort of debate them and humiliate them in public. So it's weird that they, especially troll culture, there's always a a talk of strategization, uh, yet they will turn around and say, Oh, they're they are solely doing this cynically. Yeah, but I think you see that what's interesting about that is, in a way, the 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 ideal, the intellectual ideal there is one of of a sort of jousting in a way, a sort of uh, it's a quasi military ideal of 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 what uh, the public sphere and and intellectual life is about, uh, which is very different, incidentally, from those you know those early expert communities I was mentioning earlier. These necessarily operated in a, in, in a civil society in a, in a state of peace. They they were dependent on on peace. This was one of the reasons why they they flourished in the in the second half of the seventeenth century was that finally peace was established in Europe. They are dependent on the capacity for people to reach certain kinds of agreement with one another and to achieve certain norms of cooperation and mutual trust. Because what they actually sought and what they still seek in the scientific community via journal publishing and so on is consensus. Uh, they they seek types of truth that can be generally agreed upon, which is obviously completely different from these the, the you know people like Ben Shapiro, the kind of intellectual dark web kind of folks, where the purpose for two intellectuals or, or scholars or, or, or commentators to engage with one another is to have some kind of zero sum contest where one person wins and the other person loses, which is actually a rather unusual way of understanding what you know how truth and reason. Proceeds. I mean, there is in the 20th century, there is the development of this type of approach to knowledge that I talk a bit about in the book and would be key to the development of what is sometimes called neoliberalism um, in, in the strict sense of particular Austrian traditions of economics and philosophy of people like Friedrich Hayek, Karl Popper, Ludwig von Mises, and others. And, and within that tradition, you do see the, 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 the bare bones of, of what would become that 
I suppose, in a bastardized form, the, the intellectual dark web um, philosophy, because for them, part of the, what it means for something to be true for these Austrian thinkers is that truth is, is really what hasn't yet been eliminated by something, uh, something else. So you need to have, if you're Hayek or Popper or von Mises, you need to have constant contestation and competition in, in the public sphere, because only if it's possible to, to say, okay, actually the planet is getting cooler, only if you have the freedom to come along and say that kind of thing, is it possible to then you know, discover that the person saying, no, the planet's getting warmer will actually overpower that, that, that other argument. And through overpowering them, you have proof that actually, you know, that, that global warming is, is, is true, at least for the time being, until some other voice comes along and, and, and tries again. So in a sense, you need that constant intellectual combat from, 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 this, from this rather libertarian, conservative tradition of, of the likes of Lord Ludwig von Mises, which I think is the same tradition that flows through the, these figures like um, Jordan Peterson and others, for whom, unless ideas are put into some sort of kind of boxing ring and, and, and are subjected to a, to a fight, uh, then you really have no idea whether or not they're good ideas or not. I'm glad you brought Jordan Peterson uh, because it's a little bit of a spectrum. Him, Sam Harris, and Steven Pinker, uh, they all claim to be the new bastions of, of rationality and reason. Especially Jordan Peterson, though, they just, I, for lack of a better word, are wild. No matter what Jordan Peterson says, there's some expert in the field uh, when he's talking about lobsters and psychology. You have uh, lobster experts saying he's completely wrong. And the same thing happens with Sam Harris, who claims to be above all biases, but there's some sort of great articles about this. Is it just, is this a result of this sort of competitive nature of knowledge? What do you make of all of it? It's interesting. I mean, there is, it is, and I talk briefly about some of these figures in the book. I mean, there is, and, and, and Pinker's a, a curious one as well, because on the face of it, people like Pinker and, and Peterson have nothing in common with each other, because one is a sort of an obsessive statistician and and kind of fact finder, and the other one is interested in myth and and sort of metaphysics and sort of you know the absent father and God and that sort of thing. So they're kind of a, a strange bunch. But I think that ultimately they they I think what what they share is a is a is a is a Darwinism really, which is that I mean Darwinism as a philosophy of of social change and of and of knowledge is that obviously it's survival of the fittest, which uh, implies that. Uh, it's only uh, there needs to be truth needs to be wedded to some level of aggression uh, if it's to survive. And this ironically makes them kind of Nietzscheans, I suppose, which is someone who Pinker kind of loathes more than anybody else is Friedrich Nietzsche. Well, but, Jordan Peterson is a big Nietzsche fan. Yeah, but. well, I don't think Pinker necessarily understand. I don't know if he, how much he actually knows of Nietzsche, but he blames Nietzsche for all of our woes on campuses and everywhere else. But I think that that's, that's my take on it is that they, yeah, they are sloppy sometimes with their own methods and their own facts and so on. But I think that as much as anything else, to, to they, what they strive to do is to uphold, you know, they see themselves as keepers of particular uh, flames, of particular values. Of course, some of it came out of the new atheism movement of the early 2000s, a lot of which was forged against, um, well, it was Islamophobic in, in lots of respects. And it was, it was a particular... Uh, sort of aggressive uh, assertion of of particular uh, uh, sort of uh, neoconservative slash liberal values. So I think it has. It's always been wedded to a to, to quite a bullish attempt to 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 belittle and marginalise other attitudes towards knowledge. 
but I think ultimately, you know, they, yeah, they, they, they are defenders of, of, of what they would see as the West, uh, first and foremost, within which are particular techniques and methods and disciplines of, of the natural sciences. Will Davies, thank you so much. He is the author of Nervous States, Democracy and the Decline of Reason. It is coming out late February. I'm sure this episode will come out slightly after that, so be sure to pick it up. Will, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. If you enjoyed this interview, be sure to leave us a review wherever you're listening. 